Hello, and welcome to Happier, a podcast about how to be happier. One way to be happier is reading. This week is episode 230, which means it's a very special episode, and we won't always do the Happier Podcast book club discussion for a very special episode, but this time it worked out, and we'll talk to Lisa Brennan-Jobs about her extraordinary memoir, Small Fry. I'm Gretchen Rubin, a writer who studies happiness, good habits, and human nature. I'm in New York City, and with me is my sister, Elizabeth Kraft. And Elizabeth, you read Small Fry first and then told me that I had to read it. That's me, Elizabeth Kraft, a TV writer and producer living in Los Angeles. And yes, Gretchen, for once, I read a book before you did. And as soon as I read it, I knew it had to be one of our book club selections. Absolutely. Yeah, we recently launched our Happier Podcast book club, and today we'll talk um, about our second pick. Our first pick was Danny Shapiro's Inheritance, and today we are talking about the brilliant, thought-provoking memoir, Small Fry, by Lisa Brennan-Jobs. Lisa Brennan-Jobs is a writer who lives in Brooklyn. She's written for many publications, including the Southwest Review, the Massachusetts Review, Vogue, and O, the Oprah Magazine. And the New York Times describes Small Fry this way. In her account of growing up as the daughter of an artist and the Apple co-founder Steve Jobs, the author offers an eloquent meditation on being caught between her parents' two worlds and struggling with her father's emotional negligence. Full of uncanny intimacy and a distinctive literary sensibility, the book was one of the book review's 10 best books of 2018. It's hard to imagine having Steve Jobs, the legendary, iconic, uh, world-famous figure, Steve Jobs, as your father. But this memoir is about so much more than that. It's about family. It's about identity. It's about California. It's beautifully written. Uh, it's thought-provoking. We are so delighted to have Lisa here to talk with us about Small Fry. Hello, Lisa. Hi. Hi, Lisa. It's so good to be here. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. I have a really good friend in South Africa who loves your podcast and listens to it. Oh, good. I know. Oh. It, was so, I was, it was a surprise. And so how exciting to yep. be communicating with people. Oh, that's great. Hi, friend. It's South Africa. Yes. yes Nadia. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Nadia. Well, Lisa, one reason that I think your book resonates so much is that while, yes, your father was one of the most famous people in the world ever, um, your situation is one that is so common and universal. Like yeah. so many people deal with parents who aren't together, who deal with, you know, fathers who have second families. Um, when you were writing, was that in your mind that you wanted to sort of make that that link? You mean the link to other people in the world through writing? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that um, I was a little bit sneaky about it in a certain way that in that I I had this desire to actually just write a memoir, which means if you really access all the particularities of your situation, they get kind of universal Absolute, after a point. I, it's so uncanny and so true how that is, I think. How the weirder you yes. are, the more honest about all of your eccentricities and your longings and your strange aspects, it turns out that other people identify so completely. And so the joy in it was getting really up to my, you know, getting thoroughly enmeshed in my own childhood feelings and and going and accompanying my child self and understanding how I was feeling then and and the sort of humor and understanding what I misunderstood. Yeah. And then mm. um, to get so detailed about it that that it was just 
the story of a childhood. And I, and that's the kind of wink, wink about the book is that people might pick it up thinking that it's this story of a famous man and then find themselves swept up in the story of a girl. Or they might find yes. that it's something inaccessible or glossy as a celebrity memoir would be. Something that's um, maybe showing little parts, but mainly obscuring and mainly mm-hmm. um, dwelling on surfaces. And then, in fact, they might find that they find some of their own childhood and their own feelings and themselves, really, in the pages of my childhood. Right, right. Well, just because you write just as much about your mother, for instance. So it's it's all about a relationship with a mother. It's, it's yeah, yeah. I write a lot about my mother and... Some people maybe wanted me to write more about my father, but I was thinking, well, I I don't have more. I Mm. didn't spend much time Mm -hmm. with my father, especially in my early childhood. So in the end, I felt like the balances were correct between my mother and father in terms of time. One thing that I hoped when I started writing it, actually, is that my father might be a little boring on the pages Mm. and recede. Mm. And so it was a surprise to me when I started writing that he really wasn't boring. He was really interesting. (laughs) And that was frustrating to me because, again, I wasn't hoping to write a book about him. Right. Um, And, of course, I've received a lot of publicity because of his amazing accomplishments that have nothing to do with my book. And so it is a little cheeky to get to write a real memoir from a situation like this. But I figure it's not that often that a writer is born into one of these families. Right. And so it's an interesting way in which you can, I could realistically depict my story and my family in a way that would make readers feel, have the re- realization, in fact, that they were not so different. Well, I mean, and that was, uh, to that point, one of the things that was interesting is you ha- you have been portrayed many times. Like, you appear in several biographies, including the Walter Isaacson authorized biography. There have been these biopic movies. Uh, your aunt uh, Mona Simpson's novel was in many ways modeled after you and your relationship with your father. I mean, did you find that part of what made you want to write a memoir is that you wanted to present your own version and tell your own version of your story rather than sort of like having other people kind of pop you in? I guess in retrospect, that must have been part of the impulse. Mm -hmm. But I didn't, I don't really Mm -hmm. engage with those other sources. Like I didn't watch the Sorkin movie. And I I talked with Sorkin a couple of times before he wrote the screenplay. Actually, I think three times at a cafe and didn't really talk much Mm -hmm. about my family. And my whole goal was just after reading the Isaacson, not sorry, not reading the Isaacson, but hearing that the Isaacson book, which is the the biography of my father, was not particularly accurate about me because mm-hmm. I never talked mm. with him. Right. Um, and he sort of quoted my writing as if I talked to him, but I never spoke with him. Ah. And hearing that the Isaacson book wasn't right, I thought, oh, gosh, I— and hearing that the Sorkin was going to be based on it, I thought, I better talk with him just so he knows I'm human. Right, so right, if he right, decides right, right. You're to not portray, just some name. I'm yeah. human, and I loved my father. And and so that if he decides to portray me as someone who wasn't kind and loving, then he'll have his conscience to deal with, mm. kind of. So I was just trying to get him to kind of like me and understand that I was a person. But I never saw the movie, and I didn't read the the biography, and I didn't see any other movies. I think there was another movie as well earlier. Um and read any other books because it's already difficult to feel like I'm sharing my father with everyone. Yeah. I think. And that's a personal feeling, not a feeling that has anything to do with my book. Just like actually other people seem to have their own relationship with him through his accomplishments and technology that I don't have. And in some ways I feel as if I got the short end of the stick because some of those relationships seemed in some ways more fruitful or interesting or fun. 
Uh-huh. And so mm. I didn't particularly want to engage with all of the public stuff. Yeah. So I don't I don't know if the the book felt like a way to um sort of tell my own story within it. I think I just have always been a writer and I've always been observing and the right. book was a way to make sense of my own story in a profound way so that I could go and do other stories. I had actually loved to write other books and I was <laughs> dearly hoping to find another subject before writing this book. And I just could not. Well, this is the thing that I think many writers experience. Yet. It's kind of a blocking project where it's like I, like, I have a friend who's like, I have to write this play. I don't even want to write a play, but I feel like I can't do anything else until I write this darn play and kind of get it off my brain. It's like, right. it's sort of like you've got to clear the decks before you can move on. It's, yes, it is and a I funny with, thing that happens sometimes. And I think with a lot of artists, there is this first big project has to be in some way autobiographical. Mm. Mm. And I imagine that may be true with painters, too, um, in some way. Mm. I'm not exactly sure how that translates, but certainly with writers, novelists, nonfiction and fiction, who often make their first projects uh, highly personal, Mm -hmm. maybe because they have to sort them, like Marie Kondo them, before they can Mm -hmm. move (laughs) on to the next projects. And I do well, feel like there it, are other books that I want to write. Mm-hmm. And I just needed to sort this one out. Sadly, yeah, that took struck, a very long time. Yeah. But <laughs> Well, and it, it struck me that there's several times in your childhood where you're sort of claiming your father saying, hey, my dad is Steve Jobs. And this book feels sort of like the, it's the ultimate sort of expression of that, of saying like, right, hey, like this is my father. I had this relationship um, and now you can sort of move on creatively. Right. It's like, try to own him now, you know, but not really. <laughs> because I guess the other part about that, trying to claim him when I'm young is like, what do you, What am I claiming? It, it seems so sad in certain places when I'm asserting my ownership. But ownership of what? And obviously a person would not have to assert their ownership over something that was theirs. Mm-hmm. And so fervently. And yet, because there was a gap, a question, uh, he wasn't around when I was little, and I didn't really know him that well. I guess there's also always a gap in a certain way between fathers and daughters. It's not necessarily particular to me. There's, a, there's an interesting quality in that relationship in that it's, it's, it's close, but it has a kind of, um, I don't know how to characterize it. It has an endpoint or a letting go within it. Mm-hmm. And so I think... I was always trying to claim it, and but but as like a pyrrhic victory, or I didn't quite own it, and I kind of knew it, and so there's something sad about that—a mm-hmm. um, yearning quality to it. Yes, and so the book isn't a kind of smug "he's mine," sure. but a kind mm-hmm. of "he's mine." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, what I I think what I admired the most about the book, which I loved, um, was the way it caught these sort of mysterious or very subtle undercurrents among people like these these strange moments you're in the car and it's dark and what what what's happening and then here's one passage that I loved for a long time I hoped that if I played one role my father would take the corresponding role I would be the beloved daughter he would be the indulgent father I decided that if I acted like other daughters he would join in the lark we'd pretend together and in pretending we'd make it real but if I had observed him as he was or had admitted to myself what I saw I would have known that he would not do this and that a game of pretend would disgust him. And when I read that, I was like, I have seen that so many times unfold in my life where people are like, if I act this way, you have to act that way. And people just don't play that game. 
And yet people get trapped in thinking that they can compel someone to act out a role by taking a role themselves. And honest people don't play that game. And it's a quality that I respect about my father that he wouldn't play that game. Yes. But it was so frustrating. Trying to separate out the qualities that I actually respect from the qualities that still make me angry Mm -hmm. was Mm -hmm. a tricky job because actually that degree of authenticity where you, you will not bend over backwards in any way if it means you're lying is something that both of my, a quality that both of my parents have. Mm. And a value system, I think, formed in a certain way together and part of the legacy mm. of the 60s, um, even though I guess it would have been in the early 70s for them, that I respect. He uh-huh. wasn't willing mm. to, it's linked to the fact. He wasn't going to fake it. He wasn't going to fake it. He wasn't going to try to buy me off either. Mm. I think he noticed, uh, this is hard to say without sounding cheesy, I guess, but he noticed that I do have a big heart and that was worth something mm. to him. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't going to ease his own conscience uh, mm. or ease his own daily life by buying me off. And I think he could have bought me things and calmed me down. He could have bought me for fairly cheap, some nice jeans, yeah. maybe a car. And I think I would have stopped feeling all the feelings and maybe the pain that I felt about the fact that we had missed each other for so many years. And he wouldn't do it. <sighs> Fascinating. But then there's that very poignant moment at the end where he says to you, I think I know you better than the other girls. Meaning his daughters that that he that that grew up in like and I thought, wow, that is just I feel like you did he did connect with you in some deep way. Like that really came through that there was a sense of who you were and who he was and kind of this uncompromising relationship that was Well, I'm not sure it's true. I'm not sure it's true. And I, I wasn't around for many years. I was in college. I was grown. Yeah. So I wasn't in the house, and I didn't know what his relationships were with my siblings. But I guess there's the possibility that because we had had more similar childhoods in mm-hmm. a particular way, yeah. that we had more, and caused by him in part, or both of my parents, that we had more, we had a certain quality in common that's not as common. And that's what he was speaking to. But also we'd spent all these skates together and also it was during a time when he wasn't as enveloped in his work life. No, I mean, like, I keep thinking back because Elizabeth and I was like, Elizabeth, one thing I cannot imagine doing is like skating through the neighborhoods of Roller Kansas City skating. with our father. Yeah. I mean, it's like, that is not, that to me was like a hilarious image, but it's like, he was so young. Your parents were so young um, when you were seven years old, nine years old. They were shockingly young, Shocking. and I didn't realize that until I was writing the book. Yeah. I also think that the book took me uh, many years to write, seven or ten, depending on how you do the calculation of when I finally submitted to the the dastardly fate that was writing a memoir. But I, I think it took so long in part because I had to grow up to the point where the perspective in the book felt right. Mm. And when I did grow up to that point, I looked back at my parents and they were so young. Yeah. <laughs> they were so young and they were trying so hard. Yeah. And they were so principled in these in fierce ways. And but yeah, they had me when they were 23. And so I was writing the book when I was a lot older than they were then. Yeah. So I was hanging out with myself as a girl in this beautiful California. And I was also hanging out with my children as children. My sorry, my parents almost as yeah. children. Yeah. Um and so a lot of the things that I had assumed when I was a kid turned out not to be true. For example, my father was so quiet 
you know, we're driving for the first time I'm alone with him and we're in his car and we're driving to his man, we're in his Porsche and we're driving to his mansion and I'm going to stay over at his house for the first time. I mean, I think I was eight. There's been nothing more exciting or terrifying in my life since. And, but he's not talking. I can't get him to talk. And I think maybe he doesn't want to talk to me. You know, sometimes the skates, he was also quite quiet. Um, And then looking back, I realized, oh, it's just hard to be with a kid that you don't know, especially when you don't know how Mm. to be with kids, especially when you're a bit awkward and all of the tools that you use to communicate and talk with adults don't really work with children. And so it wasn't Mm. personal to me. It was his own inability and awkwardness, his own deficiencies. Mm -hmm. And these are the things that you see when you look back as someone older Mm -hmm. than the people you're looking at. Yeah. But you had that later perspective. Yeah. I also felt like I got to keep myself company. It was like, (laughs) <laughs> as this was happening as I was a kid, I thought, is this normal? Like, what is going on? Like, well, yeah. Are they really doing this? This is this is crazy, right? But right. I was the only one there. <laughs> mm-hmm. And now I get well, to go back s- and hold my hand and say, yes, crazy. It's crazy. I'm writing it out. It's crazy. Fun, yeah. but crazy. And so right. it felt um, like the, you know, at the company I had craved at the time, right. the second pair of eyes. Well, you even say at one point that you felt like the ghost of your future self is sitting in the back seat of the car when your mother is sort of having a breakdown, telling you that, you know, it's okay. And I, I just love that image of you sort of comforting yourself from the future. I feel like that is in some ways what memoir can be. Uh, yes. Although I do remember that feeling that there was this positive presence in the back of the car that couldn't affect things, but that was there. Ooh, that's and like Harry Potter coming back to save himself from the Dementors. It's like Harry Potter. Yes. Well, I thought, um, I think Danny, our first book club pick was Danny Shapiro talking about inheritance. And I think Danny would, would also perhaps say that her present self is now able to go back to the past self and the questions of the past self. And now those can be resolved kind of in her mind. Um, and a lot of the a lot of things that you didn't realize were questions can be opened up, reexamined, and buttoned up right. Yeah, I think if you're looking at having your own family going into the future, sometimes you had addressed something or resolved something, maybe in a not so fantastic way. Yeah, and so you get to go back and say, "Oh, that wasn't right. Let's take out all these stitches mm-hmm. and sew it up in the in the right way." Um, that conclusion about life, that understanding was based on some sort of hurt or innocence that can be fixed by looking back and re-interpreting. So some of it was that. It was like my mom was saying, you have to write this book because you have to understand your past or you'll repeat it, which Mm. I thought, oh, it's such Mm. a cliche. Right. Like, okay, mom, that's the cliche of cliches. But I think (laughs) then it turns out to be in some ways true. Yeah. I'm not sure yet what parts of my past or my family I will repeat, but I think it's better if it's a choice. So if you go back and shine light into some of these darker places, then I guess you get to bring your own consciousness more to the future. And you don't have to have some of the difficulties that you had before. That's the hope. That's the hope. We'll continue our discussion with Lisa Brennan-Jobs after this break.
Noom is the habit-changing solution that helps users learn to develop a new relationship with food through personalized courses. Based in psychology, Noom teaches you why you do the things you do and empowers you with the tools you need to break bad habits and replace them with better ones. Because everyone's different, Noom adjusts to your lifestyle. They teach you the psychology behind the decisions you make and then help you keep track of everything from workouts and steps to analyze your diet and recommending healthy recipes. Noom also connects you with a personally assigned goal specialist and a community of other Noomers, so you have all the support you need to empower your change. Gretch, you know, I love Noom. I love all the tools it has, especially the step tracker and the weight tracker. I rely on those every day. Yep, you don't have to change it all in one day. Small steps make big progress. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com slash happier. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash happier. What do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com slash happier to start your trial today. Lisa, you've mentioned California a couple of times, and, you know, it does feel like the book is as much about growing up in Northern California as it is almost about your family. Like, to me, it had a Joan Didion quality yeah, yeah. in the best possible way Thank you. of evoking California. Yeah. The was eucalyptus, that, uh, the earth, yes. the, yeah. Well, I was um, sitting in a closet in Brooklyn. <laughs> I can, wow, it doesn't actually, feel like it. Actually, in Manhattan, I'd converted one of our closets into an office because that was the only space. And then you're sitting in this sort of closet in this dank, you know, wintry, <laughs> I don't know, smellless, dirty city and dreaming of this other place. So I'm sure and some of it is do glorified. That? Like, uh, well, it, it, it seemed magical. And was that something you, you were going for? Or was that just your memories sort of pouring out and that and that's what was um, ended up on the page? It was magical. I don't know. Have you spent a lot of time in Northern California? It's magical. The light is magical. I think right now the culture is different, people say. And mm-hmm. it's, again, I didn't see a pair of high heels my whole childhood. There was no woman rails. My father had a Porsche, but I think he was like one of the only ones. And I think people must have been really interested in money, but that wasn't the prevailing sense. And I remember it is a university town as well. Yes, it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, so we got some questions from listeners. So here's a question from Michelle about the neighbors, um, Kevin and Dorothy. So Michelle asks, Kevin and Dorothy were clearly very important influences and supporters of the author, but their relationship seems to have ended rather unceremoniously in the book, almost transactional. They were upset that Steve, Steve, your father, was invited to her graduation from Harvard. Her mother asked them to submit a complete list of expenses, which Steve then paid, and that was that. As I read the book, I became very endeared to them and was shocked by the seemingly abrupt ending, which appeared supported by the fact that they were not named in the acknowledgments. Can the author offer any additional insight regarding the relationship? And I have to say, this was an amazing moment when your mother's friend said, Lisa's going to find out that she can't replace her parents, and Kevin and Dorothy are going to learn they can't buy a daughter. I was like, oh, that <laughs> like went right to the heart. So do you want to? That was what my mom's friend said. I don't know if that's the truth. Um, I don't know. I don't think they were trying to buy me. I think they were trying to help me because they saw me in a circumstance that they understood from their own childhoods. Uh. And they also saw their parents had been somewhat powerful in their communities. Mm -hmm. And they saw what happens when kids are having a difficult time with their parents. And because the parents are powerful, no one will help. Mm. And they were very moved to help 
So they identified with your situation. I think they identified. They knew the pattern. They were both lawyers, and they saw it very closely. They felt repulsed by sycophants because they had a lot of knowledge of that culture around a person from their own childhoods. Mm -hmm. And they had grown up together and sort of saved each other in a certain way from their own difficult situations. And they saw it, and they felt like they couldn't turn away. Mm-hmm. And they had a way to help. And so they they said to me, and I wrote that in the book, that they, I just like, what do you do with such a gift, right? It's like embarrassingly large. Plus, so many people deserve that, and why was I getting it? Mm-hmm. And mm. um, and they said, pay it forward. Mm-hmm. You know, do something. Mm. And, and they've said to me um, now that they feel like I've done a good job, and that this mm. book is in some ways doing that. Actually, ah. no, I think that they said that. But they've been, I'm in touch with them, and they've been, I wasn't sure if they would be supportive. I wasn't sure if they would feel insulted. I didn't mean to insult them. I meant to just describe it as it happened. I think it's tricky. Uh It's very sticky and difficult if you get involved in someone's family dynamic when you're not part of the Mm -hmm. family. And they had come in and done that in a really important time for me and really helped me. But it's still sticky, and it's still messy. It's still... No matter what you do, you're still not necessarily, you're still human, I guess, is what I mean to say. Mm-hmm. And they were. Right. And even though I think they were right to be upset that my father was coming to my graduation, he was still my father. Yeah. And that's why I invited him, because I realized that that was the the right thing to do for the future. Right. And not out of anything not because I was trying to hold on to something or cultivate a relationship where there shouldn't be one, but just because by by the nature of our genetic bond, we mean something to each other, and I had to honor that. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad I did invite my father, even if I didn't mean to insult them or hurt them. So um, I think it was difficult at the time because I felt as if I had been abandoned by them. And I certainly wouldn't have, I didn't have anywhere else to stand because after college, my father didn't help me get a job or didn't help me with my life. It wasn't like I had traded them for my father. I just had to invite him to my graduation. And then in hurting them so much, I felt very alone. Mm -hmm. But I don't think if you look at the individual perspectives in that situation that anyone was necessarily wrong. Mm-hmm. And reading it now, they probably have a much better understanding of of where you are coming from. I wonder. They have been so supportive and loving. And I have a new baby, and they brought him gifts, and they're asking mm-hmm. after my son and my stepdaughters. And I will see them when I go to California. So, And their kids are grown and wonderful. So I think it's going to work out okay. They really did, they stepped in when things were really rough, mm-hmm. and they made sure I was okay. I would have had to drop out of college. I think it would have been such a bitter and difficult episode between me and my father that I don't know if I would have been able to recover from it. Mm. I don't think that I would have been able to speak with my father again if it had been impacted my life so profoundly as that. Mm-hmm. When his ability to pay for college was never in question. Mm -hmm. And I was getting A's. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So what they did in a certain way is preserve the ability for me to have a relationship with my parent, mm-hmm. which I think was honorable and great. But it just Absolutely. got difficult at the end. Um, but I know them again, and it's okay. But I, yeah, I sent them the book in the galleys. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, God, are they ever going to talk to me again? Yeah. I also sent the book to my mother's, one of my mother's ex-boyfriends, Ron, who is depicted comically, and he's quite mm-hmm. a character. Actually, my husband recently met him and said, wow, he's even more of a character than he is in your book. <laughs> <laughs> um, But he sent me an email, and it said something like, um, the title, the subject line said something like, um, one correction or something. I don't know. Uh-oh. Something that I thought, oh, no. And I didn't want to open the email for a while. And then I opened it, and he said something like, um, you know, while I appreciate certain ways in which you've depicted me, um, the truth is that the way you said I look as, you know, with a bald head and a, and and my feet like a clown and, a, you know, <laughs> ears that stick out. I remember exactly how I described him. And he said, um, the way I actually look, I've attached a photograph. And he had a photograph of Fabio. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's, that's funny. funny. Yeah. That's funny. That's great. That's funny. Uh, we have another question. This is from Lisa. She says, um, and it's related to the time when your father was um, really sick with the cancer. Um, she says, um, when her father asked if she was going to write about him, she said no. And he said, good. Did you at the time really think you would not do so? Um, When you later did write about him, did that bother you? So one of the things about writing memoir is that you're not trying to depict yourself as good. You're trying to Mm. find your humanity, I think. Um, And and the way to access it, at least for me, was was to discover every place in which I hadn't been good. I was reading Tobias Wolff's This Boy's Life, and I noticed how every point in which he's uh, devious or mischievous or naughty, I loved him more. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of eye-opening for me, and it opened my book up. I was able to find all the places where I wasn't good, and those were kind of the keys to finding a character that felt like it was true and like it was me on the page. It also, I guess, if you find the places where you aren't good and you survive it somehow, meaning you still like yourself, then there's no place to fall. Well, in what way were you not good at that moment? Well, like at the beginning of the book, I'm taking things from my father's house. Later, I'm taking hundreds. I'm I'm lying. I'm, I'm bragging in order to make myself feel better in different places. And all of these places I found where I am devious are the places that made the book, made me able to to find the the difficulties in other characters, made me able to display other characters, warts and all. And also, uh, when I no longer felt so ashamed of myself, I could really tell the story fully. So there's a scene in Philip Roth's Patrimony, which is his, a sort of a memoir about his fa- him and his father and his father dying. And there's a difficult scene about his his father's, like, um, becoming continent, and he's helping his father out. And it's like this horrible, messy, embarrassing moment. And his father says, you're not going to put this in your book, uh, are you? And he says, no. Uh, and I thought, oh, it kind of has something like that. Uh, <laughs> so, so I thought, well, I've got to put it in. I was No, I was already sort of working on it. And the uh, way that I justified, I was working on the book 
Also because I felt like I, in order to understand myself and my past and in order to not feel ashamed all the time, uh-huh. I had to write this book somehow, even if it was the most embarrassing and mortifying thing I could think of. So I was working on it, even if I didn't really want to be. Um, and the way I, I kind of justified it to myself was, well, but I'm not writing about you. I'm writing about me. Ah, and in writing yes. about yourself in memoir, there is this awful necessary thing, which is you you cast a net out and you pull up everyone else who is involved in, in your story. And you have an obligation to tell them as honestly and as kindly and as minimally as you can in a certain way. Meaning you don't want to be gratuitous about someone else who didn't want to be in your story. Mm. But they are involved. They come into the picture. So, and that's the horrible crime that you commit that you don't want to commit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that feels so scary and so wrong at times that you have to come to terms with the feeling of being wrong and and being devious. And I think this was one of those moments that I could put in the book to show you that I, I know I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a. I'm a memoirist. I'm I'm a criminal. Well, this is like Janet Malcolm talking about journalists about how they they cannot help but deceive that they they're in this situation where they are going to betray, in a sense, the human relationship that's there because now they're going to write an account of it. You have to maybe like break the lock to get free. Yeah. Even if you don't want to break something. Yeah. Coming up, more discussion about Lisa Brennan Jobs' memoir, Small Fry. But first, this break. So talk a little bit about Mona Simpson. So she's your aunt. She, I think, it comes is one of the, the, the most, um, she comes across very, very well. It feels like she's very, very supportive, really underst- kind of saw you for who you were and, 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 and was sympathetic to your situation. Um, she did write a novel where you were like, huh, this seems to be about me, um, which seemed like would be a strange feeling. I have to say, I, after I read your, your memoir, I went, out, I went to the library and got the book, and I was so distracted by, is this or is this not Lisa and Steve and what's going on? I couldn't even read it because I, I, I couldn't suspend my engagement enough to experience it as a novel. Um, and, then, and then subsequent, of course, to your, your memoir coming out, um, she released a statement basically saying, this isn't how we remember things happening. So, What's your, what are your reflections on the Mona Simpson of it all? I think she's an exquisite writer, and she's been an exquisite aunt. Mm-hmm. She has the quality of finding beauty and um, interest in all different parts of life. And mm-hmm. I, I found in her that she was a way to envision an escape. Mm. <laughs> right. She was a person who I was related to, but she was magical and... Um, she wasn't burdened by me. <laughs> she wasn't burdened by having a young child. Um, she was having a great she, life. She was having a great life. I guess this is the role of the aunt, right, yeah. in a certain way. Um, and she would write me letters, and she would take me on trips, and she was a woman who was successful in the world. And so I tried to show that. I think, yeah, she has mined her own life for details and stories. I think A Regular Guy, which is the yeah. book that she wrote loosely based on our family story, is in a certain way tricky because she doesn't have to follow the rules that I have to follow. Mm-hmm. In memoir, I have to 
be as truthful as I can. Yes. I can't include something, a scene that didn't happen or that I don't remember. Um, I can't change around a character to make them expeditious for the story. And one of the things that you can do in fiction is you can take certain things based on the truth and then you can change another character entirely. So, for example, in A Regular Guy, the person that plays, the woman that plays my mother, kind of, or who would be my mother if yeah. it was, is um, irresponsible and unloving and nothing. Like, my mother and people for years have thought yes. because it was mapped against yes. a famous and well-known person and they could tell that that elements of that story were true. Yeah. You know, the career wasn't true, but yeah. the general character, perhaps they thought it mapped against the news stories they'd read, that the character of my mother must also be true. And so my mother has had that people's idea of her for many years. And I think that's been awful, truly awful. Well, it's funny because novelists always say, well, it's a novel and sure there's things that I take from my own life, but then I've created this whole fictional layer. But it's like when people read it, they're like, no, they, they do the Romana clay when they're like, you correspond <laughs> to you. And, you know. Well, I think it's fine to do as a novel, but if you base it on a public figure and you base it so closely mm -hmm. on a public well, this figure, is like, I mean, she's obviously said that this the is like career, Curtis Sittenfield's um, uh, American Wife. American Wife, which is right. so closely. On Barbara, but well, no, it's Laura Bush. Laura Bush. Laura Bush. That you're sort of like, what's true, what's not true. It feels like the whole thing. It feel, and it's such a an a portrait that it, the whole thing feels true. And I got yet, this third thing. She, and with she's my a novelist, book. You right? Know. Right. Yeah. I get a third thing with my book. Right. The more ordinary it is, the more extraordinary it is yes. in a certain way because it's being contrasted. It's being bounced against this public story. Yes. You also get a third thing, and maybe Danny Shapiro talked about this with a memoir, which is you can go through really difficult times. But the reader knows unconsciously or consciously reading it, you made it through yes. or you wouldn't have written the book. Yes. yes. There's another thing you yes. get as a child yes. memoir, another little gift you get, which I'll, you never get again when you write memoir from the adult perspective, which is you get the benefit of the doubt because mm. you're a child. So you are naturally, mm. even if you're spunky and even if you're mischievous, you are a victim because you're a child. You don't have... You're innocent in a you're way. You're innocent. You don't have all the power an adult has. And so when you make, when you do dastardly things or you do naughty things or you manipulate or you steal or you lie, you still have the benefit of the doubt because you are an innocent. Well, no, like you opening your book with you kind of shoplifting from your parents, from, from <laughs> your father's house. It's like, it's like, that. Eh, it seems totally understandable. Totally get that. Yeah. You can understand it. And I think you could probably understand it from the perspective of an adult too, but it's trickier. It would be different. Right. It would have different. a different flair. Because yeah. at a certain point, I mean, my mother says nobody survives childhood. They just grow up. At a certain point, you <laughs> leave your childhood behind and you have responsibility for your actions. And as a child, you're still an innocent and you don't totally. When you're not autonomous. So you're not, you're, you're not, you're not, yeah, you're not making choices about who you right. live with right. or. And I so those are all the things I, I got to push my story up against and create boundaries that were interesting or boundaries that were interesting were created for me. And I guess in the case of fiction, if you're writing a fictional book, but you're involving the outlines of a famous person, it can make the fictional book more interesting, too, because you bounce it against the reality. Um, so I imagine it's, it's a kind of um, art in itself to play and not play on a true story. I, you know, I mean, in other words, a novelist saying, it's a novel, it's not related, 
if they involve a famous person, then they are getting the benefit and the energy from that extra friction against a true story. And I think there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. I'm just saying that it can cause harm as well. Right. But as a memoirist, you felt a lot of responsibility to be truthful. I did, but I think that, you know, you heard people. I was surprised that the neighbors were so positive and supportive. And I'm really happy about it because I felt like I was fair and honest with them and that I depicted them well um, and human. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. I was surprised um, with Mona's reaction and especially considering how much she's written about her life and the people in her life. And, but she, you know, she's human too. And she's been a great support to me. Mm-hmm. She was actually helpful. She read through an earlier draft of the book and was very helpful with things like not using words that were too complicated for the age of my character, certain words, certain mm. vocabulary words mm. that stood out. Interesting. And also, I think the other thing that can happen with a memoir, she said, is that you have a whole collection of, ragged collection of too many characters by the end that in fact you have to pare it down so that by the end Mm. there aren't too many people, people whose names you already forget. Mm -hmm. I had a whole collection of friends in high school eliminated Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. it turns out to create the sense of a whole life, you actually don't need so many so many different people. Laura, uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder and Rose Wilder Lane, her daughter who is her editor, they talked, there's a lot there about you've got to, don't have a new uncle appear, have the old uncle come back. Don't have two bratty girl school friends, have one bratty school girlfriend right. who comes back because right. otherwise it just, it is. It's just this parade of characters that to a reader, like they, they can't be interested in them. Right. Yeah. And of course I couldn't have the other, the bratty school girl come back if she didn't come back. Right. So but I Laura, had Laura Ingalls Wilder, like <laughs> she, she did the novel, she did the novel is it a novel? Is it a memoir? She said, it's the truth. It's not the whole truth, is right. what she said. Mm-hmm. But right. So I had enough stories in the end. I probably wrote seven books for this one uh-huh. that I could have someone come back in a way that worked and that was true mm-hmm. without having too many schoolgirls at the end. Mm-hmm. I eliminated some of the names of my mother's ex-boyfriends. I was, It was recommended to me to even cut out one or two of them, but I just couldn't because they were too important to me. Mm-hmm. Um I cut out last names. I think one of my mother's boyfriends, I called him the rock climber. I just didn't say his name, which was David, mm. because it turned out who cared to know mm-hmm. his whole name when he was a minor character in the book and it wasn't important. And then friends in high school, it turned out that just to focus more on Josh worked and I didn't mm-hmm. really need, I didn't really need everyone. Of course, it feels a little sad yeah, because it makes sense to include everyone. But I think the reader, in the end, they feel the lushness of a high school experience with even so few people named. Right, right, right. Which is weird. It yeah. is weird. Yeah. yeah. Well, you can, yeah, it's how to suggest the whole with just the details is the art of it. Well, Lisa, thank you so much. This has been such a fascinating conversation. I feel like we could talk about this book for hours. Um, but uh, it's so great to have you here. And congratulations on the paperback publication. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks, Lisa. We've had our conversation with Lisa Brennan-Jobs, but we would still love to hear your impressions and reflections on this terrific memoir, Small Fry. What are you thinking? Um, Let us know on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Drop us an email at podcast at GretchenRubin.com. Or as always, you can go to the show notes for this episode. This is happiercast.com slash 230 for everything related to this episode. Remember, whenever it is and wherever you are, there's always a book waiting for you. 
And that's it for this episode of Happier. We hope you loved the book Small Fry and being part of the book club discussion. Soon we will announce our next choice. Thanks to Lisa Brennan-Jobs. We so appreciate her joining us in the studio to discuss Small Fry. Thank you to our executive producer, Chuck Reed, our engineer, Bob Tabador, and everyone at Cadence 13. Get in touch. Gretchen's on Twitter, at Gretchen Rubin, and I'm at Elizabeth Kraft. Our email address is podcast at GretchenRubin.com. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcast. The resources for this week. If you would like to get an email every time we have a new episode, you can sign up at GretchenRubin.com slash hashtag newsletter um, to get an email with the show notes for every episode. Um, when you enter your email address, you can select podcast show notes uh, and that will sign you up. And you can also, if you love to read as much as I do, follow me on Goodreads and you can see what I've read each week and mark my books to read and join the Happier Podcast Book Club discussion on Goodreads as well. Until next week, I'm Elizabeth Kraft. And I'm Gretchen Rubin. Thanks for joining us. Onward and upward. Gretch, we had so much um, to talk about. I'm just realizing we didn't get to the question about why she called the book Small Fry and how that was her father's nickname. Yeah, 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 yeah. And how she thought it meant that she was like the runt French fry and didn't know it was the fish until later. I know. I Like, why was that um, the defining title? Yeah. Well, we'll have her back. From the Onward Project.